Hello and welcome to episode three of the McQuaid Arcade Podcast. We're talking games, movies, tech, toys, and all things 80s. My name is Barney. And I'm Biggs. We're talking about the Goonies. Mentioned it in our last episode, 1985. All right, we are back and we are talking about the Goonies. Now, this is a movie. We are actually fresh off a rewatch of the Goonies. Last night, before we before we recorded this episode, we, we rewatched it again. And man, I just had so much fun. It's actually been a while since I've seen it. Um, again, it's one of those things that I, I thought I remembered how good it was, but it was even better. In one hour and 54 minutes, they do more than some entire seasons of TV shows, right? Those characters, yep. the story, the pacing. It is, of course, 1985, right? Which mm-hmm. is, as we've said, an important year, a mythologic year uh, in our mythos, and just continues to have important cultural influence. And I wanted to start by saying that it was actually selected for the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being, quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. We're not alone in loving this film. We are not. Uh, It's all those things. The pacing is, it's perfect. There's not a wasted moment in this movie. And the opening scene, it's exciting, but we also meet all of the, the kids, all the characters. And by the end of this opening scene, we already know them. By the time they leave Mikey's house, we know all these kids. And there's been no exposition. There's been no... You know, just through context and their relationship, the things they say to each other, the way they act. It's so true. And the way that they wove that together with the police chase, seeing each of them kind of in in situ in their own little homes and their own environments, it told you so much about them. And you could you feel like a lesser show might do some exposition or try to show you a lot of them. But all it took were these little just these beautiful little moments, you know, these almost tableaus of each character when junk pushes up against the the window with the milkshake (laughs) and the pizza. I mean, it's just such a moment. You're like, yes. And then by the time they all get together, you already feel like you know them a little bit. And that just brings it all together. And it, it's just a brilliant opening to the movie. It really is. And, you know, for us, I mean, I'll speak for myself. You, you were always cooler and continue to be cooler. But I, I am a true nerd. So one of the things I love about this film is that it is a bunch of outsiders, a bunch of nerds coming together to, to win the day, right? They actually pull it off. And I love how each person kind of has their own nerdy skill. They're, they're almost like a specialized team. Data, of course, you know, has all of his gadgets, which we'll talk about the suction cup belt, bully blinders, slick shoes, pinchers of peril, and the pop-out boxing glove. Mouth is the linguist master, you know, speaking Spanish, uh, sometimes, sometimes to cause havoc, <laughs> but other times to actually help them with the beautiful rhyming the, the, the Spanish that rhymes in translation, quite quite impressive. <laughs> right. It's written in Spanish and somehow rhymes in old English when read. It's, un- it's unbelievable, really. Uh, Mikey with his history buff and love of pirates lore, Andy with her piano skills, and Chunk, who can use his anger, right, to just break down doors and, and accomplish great things, but also uses his humor and charm. So just such a great group of characters that are iconic, but they're not just, they're not just, carbon copies of you know hero archetypes they really are their own unique characters they have twists there's no there's no character in there that feels like mr do anything if you will they all have their own their own little foibles as well and i think we'd we would agree that mikey is sort of the the heart at the heart of this movie right he is emotionally and just you know telling the story he really carries it um 
you kind of, you feel sorry for him. He's sort of little, uh, the famous line from Andy at the end, when the parts of you that aren't working so great, uh, may are going to catch up to the ones that do whatever that may mean. Subtle innuendo there he is. And he's, he's very, he's very actually, uh, fragile or vulnerable, right? He constantly uses that inhaler and you kind mm-hmm. of feel for him. His mom, Mrs. Walsh is super protective of him and, and very right. worried about him. He almost is like a little bit sickly, the runt of the litter in a way, but yes, he brings this whole thing together and he he really carries the day in all of the key moments. He's always the one pushing them forward. Yes. The moments they want to turn back, when Bran is, is coming to get all the kids and take them back, when they have a moment to escape in uh, Troy's bucket, he's the one <laughs> that that pushes them forward. That whole scene that we can, I mean, I feel like we could break down any scene in this movie and talk about it. That's one of the great ones. The uh, The fountain, the wishing well scene. Yes. It's our time down here. And that's an amazing moment because, first of all, we get Mouth being serious in a, in a real moment that still, how many times we've seen this movie, when we watched it last night, it was like, wow, it was still powerful. It, it, is, it actually seems to get better with repeat watching. It's one of those things, right, that, that you don't get bored of, that has a little bit of the same kind of appeal as, as a cult type film you know it like a rocky horror picture show one mm. of these movies where you watch it over and over and you get to know the lines you get to know the characters and as we were discussing last night i've seen it you know at least a dozen times and there were things that i was learning last night because i've actually never watched it with the subtitles on so right. i learned a couple of things that i had been mishearing or misthinking about for a long time so yeah i think i think you can really get into it um and I agree. The monologues are so well written, right? I mean, there's just some beautifully written pieces, these little soliloquies that the characters do, right? Mikey's, you know, down here, it's our time. It's our time down here in mouth. As you say, when he gives his piece, this one's my wish, my mm-hmm. dream. It's it's actually kind of moving. It's a little cheesy, but the way they've set up the characters and the way they've built the scene, it carries you completely forward. It's fantastic. We're going to talk about the the reception to this movie. In a little while, I read one review from uh, 1985 that called some of the performances syrupy. I don't know that I would say that. I think they were pretty real to me. Me too. These kids felt like kids you could know. Yes, they'd be you know among the coolest kids, but again, they, they had their foibles. They really were not perfect. They didn't seem cartoonish or over the top in any way. And I, I really thought that was the strength, that it was such a well-balanced, it was like really an ensemble. You know, mm-hmm. we like every character for a different reason. And that's hard to do for a cartoony show, because usually you kind of pick one, there's one hero, and everybody else is sort of in, in the supporting cast. But that was not the true with this film. What are some of your favorite moments, some of the moments that really stick with you? When you think about this movie, what, what comes to mind? Well, of course, when when they first go into the Fratelli's hideout, the restaurant, and Mouth says that ridiculous thing, he wants a fettuccine Alfredo, and then I want a bottle of fettuccine, a 1981. A 1981. It's brilliant, you know, and you wonder how much he was he was ad libbing or not. I mean, he's he's a talented guy. I mean, he really is. Um, Corey Feldman is just a talented actor and very funny. So you wonder how much of that was him just coming through. And my favorite part of all is at the very end when they're in the pirate ship and Mama Fratelli is pulling the pearls out of Mouth's <laughs> mouth, and she's just going, "Oh my god!" Oh my and just god. pulling out all this stuff, and he's spitting out emeralds and rubies. I just love these little these little tiny moments, you know, because they're just they're so rich and they're so clever. What about for you? Which which scenes stand out as being favorites? When I think of the movie, what first comes to mind is that classic again that opening that is so perfect where we're getting to know all the characters. And 
I think my favorite moment is Chunk with the statue. Uh, <laughs> the statue falls, of course. And he has these moments where, you know, throughout the, like, you thought I was going to drop it, didn't you? And then, of course, he chunks it up and drops it. And everyone's like, you klutz. But the, uh, the statue and the, uh, breaks the dong off the statue. Mikey's mom's favorite part. So, of course, she's going to notice. <laughs> and you think it on upside down. Notice. <laughs> oh god i mean in that in that scene that could have been I, I just feel like no offense to disney i'm a disney fan you know that but some of the disney shows that my daughter watches they are so ham-fisted ham-handed over the top cheese ball you know the, the 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 child actors are like hey guys what do you think about this it just seems so crappy and crummy and, and low lowbrow they would pull this off if they tried to do it. It would be horrible. It would be yeah. cringeworthy. But these Cringe. actors are having fun and they're clever. And it you buy it. You buy it. He drops the thing, but he doesn't drop it like in a ridiculous, you know, like a, a slapstick comedy kind of way. I mean, it really right. looks like he, he had it. He's like, I got it. You guys thought I was going to drop it. I mean, it's brilliant. And I think that's it's so hard to do. So I would argue part of the magic of this. So the writing, of course, and the directing is amazing. Um, and this was Chris Columbus directed, right? And Spielberg mm-hmm. helped write it. But casting. And it really makes me think. Chris Columbus, I believe, wrote uh, Donner. Oh, Richard right, Donner right, directed. right. Yeah. Sorry, Richard Donner. Right. Columbus and Spielberg co-wrote, right? And then Donner directed. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, but it makes me think about Stranger Things. And, of course, this is a spiritual connection. You know, this has a powerful spiritual connection to Stranger Things. And Stranger Things is another another experience that, to me, is made pure magic by the casting you got the right characters who just fall into these roles and that's what carries the day with the wrong people i think it would be a disaster i agree and i believe this is my first rewatch of the goonies since stranger things began and seeing it again it's wow you really see the roots you see the inspiration and the characters well of course the stranger things characters are are more grounded in reality the kids in the goonies they're, they are these caricatures, but they're so grounded. Like you said, they sell it. You believe it. You really do. And, and that's, that's the difference between a cheeseball kids movie and a movie yeah. like this that I think anyone can appreciate at any age. I mean, I think it, and, and I think that's the magic of a good kids film is that there are those two simultaneous levels of joy. The kids are getting some of the basic stuff and the pratfalls and simple jokes, but then there's that second level. I mean, the whole scene with mouth translating in Spanish for Rosalita and saying all this terrible stuff. I mean, I think as a little kid, the first time I saw it, I don't think I really, I didn't get it. I just knew he was being silly. Now you listen to what he's saying. It's like, oh my goodness, this guy. The heroin, you know, the I mean, sexual torture devices. <laughs> you really appreciate how, how clever it is and how, you know, a 12 or 13 year old, whatever they're supposed to be, they would not say that, but that's what they're so cool. Spielberg, that's his signature, right? These kids are always a little bit precocious, a little bit, you know, beyond their years, but in just the right amount, you know, so that it's believable. I look forward to watching this with my kids one day, but daddy, what is a sexual torture device is not a question <laughs> I think I'm, I'm equipped to answer yet. I'm not, I'm not ready. Go ask your mother. <laughs> the... Music is outstanding between, of course, the famous theme song by Cindy Lauper, which uh, it's funny when I think of that, I actually hear the 8-bit version in my head from the Goonies 2 video game, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But of course, there's a famous Cindy Lauper theme song. We heard some synthy music on this rewatch that I, I, don't, I didn't really remember. And man, talk about a Stranger Things vibe again. 
just feeling that inspiration. Oh my gosh, yes. And I'd never noticed that. I mean, because it really is an orchestral score, which is amazing, right? All the music yeah. is beautiful, including the the very Spielbergian light motifs, right? When data's on the scene, you get the ba-bum, ba-bum, yep. ba-bum, ba-bum. I mean, that is such a cool thing. And, and not everybody does that, right? There's, you know, John Williams is the king of that with Star Wars stuff. Each character has their light motif and you, the music is telling its own story, but this did some of that too. Um, but right, we had that one scene, I think when they were out, uh, they were out by the beach. We heard some of these little digital kind of sounds, almost eight bit soundtrack that did totally conjure Stranger Things for us, which was so cool. And then I have to make the point about um, one of the neat things they did with the Cindy Lauper song is they started playing it on the TV in the house. So the characters were listening to it. And I think that the term for this is diegetic. So the sounds were, the characters could hear the sounds and the music. And then as they got on their bikes and left, the music kept playing over it. So it went from diegetic to non-diegetic, which was just kind of cool, right? Like they were hearing it on TV and then it became part of the soundtrack. The use of music in a cool way brings me back to Stranger Things, right? Especially that that first season, music was such an important part of it. And the in the synth tones for Stranger Things soundtrack, I've listened to, I mean, hundreds of times. That's what I that's what I am um, listening to when I'm writing or or if I'm studying or reading something. I will have those songs going in the background over and over and over, and I love them so much. My favorite piece actually um, on that entire soundtrack from the first season is called Kids, and it's it's kind of the iconic one that you think of where it's that. And it's just, it builds and it's so beautiful and it's so synthy. Um, and it's true because it is kind of a bridge to 8-bit music and the Goonies 2 was the game we had, right? We never got a Goonies 1. Right. Well, it's funny. When we were kids, we just assumed that it was called the Goonies 2 because it was a sequel to the movie. Right. That made perfect sense to our young brains. Yeah. But it turns out there was a, there was a Goonies game. It just didn't get released in North America. It was released for the Japanese Famicom system by Konami. And that rendition of the Cyndi Lauper song is so perfect. Konami are one of, the, uh, one of those companies that, back during the 8-bit days, just by listening to the music and just catching a glimpse of the screen, you could tell a Konami game right away. And that music with that Konami feel is just... Like I said, when I think of that song, that's what I hear in my head first. And we heard it over and over and over as we were lost in those woods and cabins in that stupid game that I, I must have played, you know, 50 hours and barely got anything done in it. It was so hard. The only way I made any progress in that was with the official Nintendo Player's Guide. It had the map. There were weird warp zones. It was like a weird old man in a warp zone. It was very strange. Uh, not at all like the movie. But uh, it was one of those games that we played a lot of despite the fact that it wasn't very good. There were many games like that back in the day because we didn't have a whole lot of options. That was the, yeah, you the played truth. what you had. <laughs> what about the critical reception of Goonies? So I know you're kind of you're a little bit upset about it. I just assumed that this was a universal classic for everybody. That at the time it came out, it must have been a smash hit. Everybody loved it. And I did a quick Google last night and I was outraged. I was shook. When I saw these numbers. Were you nonplussed? IMDb, I was nonplussed. <laughs> it sits at a 7.8 on IMDb. A 75% on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow. Fresh, but only 75%. And Metacritic, 
a paltry 62%. Wow. Well, what's funny is my wife and I have an unspoken rule that it's got to be over 80% in Rotten Tomatoes for us to watch something together. So it's sad. It's a sad commentary you indeed. You miss the Goonies. Miss the Goonies. Wow. Dang. I was wondering if these reviews were from when the movie originally came out or if it was somebody now watching and reviewing the movie. Uh, and it made me question our our judgment when it comes to something like this, something that was so important in our childhood. What role does nostalgia play? Can we see it objectively? I know a movie is always going to be a subjective thing, but, you know, the magic of our childhood that we were in the middle of when we watched the movie and that it reminds us of, does that play a part in how we remember this movie? And I say, no, we are right. Everyone else is wrong. I second the motion. Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel, of course, the two big heavy hitters of movie reviews back in the day. Their, their reviews came up when I, when I checked it out last night. And it's funny. They each gave it three out of four stars. Respectable. Yeah. For totally different reasons, though. Roger Ebert says uh, he called it a smooth mixture of the usual ingredients from Steven Spielberg action movies made special because of the high-energy performances of the kids who had the adventures. Bam. I fall right in line with that. Me too. Gene Siskel, on the other hand, said that uh, some kind of minor movie miracle takes place and the Goonies gets its act together as the kids stop trading wisecracks and get closer to finding their long-lost pirate treasure, thereby help their parents uh, save their parents' homes. So... Siskel basically said, like, lose the first two reels of this movie, and it's great. Like, once it finally gets going. I was so blown away by the opening of the movie last night. I, I mean, I haven't shut up about it. It's what I'm talking about the whole time. The, the exciting intro and meeting these kids and getting to know these kids and the dialogue. And Ebert really felt that the kids, the characters, made this special. And Siskel just saw it as a bunch of, you know, kids just doing the usual potty mouth and wise correct i think he missed it i think he missed the magic because yeah i mean if you really look at the story at its base the story isn't that exciting like if you really look at the trials and tribulations they're not that crazy it really is it's a character exploration it's you get to know these characters and learn about them and have these little adventures with them that are kind of outsized but still not that ridiculous even though certainly doesn't make sense for these one-eyed willy traps to last in perfect condition for several hundred years. But still, right, there was nothing that crazy. And apparently, um, even some of the bigger stuff was cut out. Like, there was apparently a giant octopus scene. Yeah, the famous octopus line at the end. Robert Davi and Joe Pantoliano, Joey Pants, played Jake and Francis Fratelli. And Anne Ramsey as Mama Fratelli, they really were iconic bad guys. When you think about it, they were silly to an extent but also really scary i mean they're getting shot at and shooting people multiple times uh they actually pointed the gun at the kids and and actually fired you know at one point when they're running after the organ scene actually shoot at the kids so there is a lot of fear i mean these guys are they're bad dudes and of course i mean even think about it there's there's a scene with a dead body with a bullet hole i mean they shot an fbi agent and he's in the ice cream cooler These are real bad guys. These are not cartoon bad guys. And I think as kids and and even as adults, I mean, that they make this so much more scary rather than goofy. You know, if you think about the Home Alone guys, you know, they they seemed ultimately pretty stupid and harmless. They weren't really going to hurt the kid. Uh, At least it didn't seem that way. If anything, the kid really did some frightening things to them, you know, and probably could have could have permanently wounded or killed those guys very easily. Uh, But these are real criminals. And I think in their chemistry, 
the way they play off each other is also pretty hilarious and legendary when they're arguing over the slice of pepperoni pizza and the mom slaps him across the face. I mean, right. <laughs> so many hard slaps from her. It was so good. Um, yeah. It's funny. You bring up home alone. It is a movie I did watch with my oldest kid and uh, the, the level of violence was really crazy, but again, it was slapstick. It was cartoony. They never pull out a gun and shot at Kevin. Like in the Goonies, as we saw last night, I, I was like, whoa, wait a minute. They almost just shot Mikey. <laughs> and you get this criminal element in it that is not normally what you would see in a kid's movie like this. It's really true. Um, I have to also point out the the iconic scene when Data falls down and is going to those spikes, right? I guess they're, they're stalag, right. stalag, might, stalag, tights, stalag. Mites. Mites, the Mites. bottom. Thank you. Uh, and he uses his Pinterest of peril to save him. But if he if that didn't work, I mean, he'd be skewered. It'd be it'd be a data kebab. Yeah. And that's pretty scary, too. That wasn't you know, that was pretty frightening. It wasn't it wasn't a foregone conclusion uh, when, when that happened. So that was a frightening little moment for these guys. It felt like there was some real peril for them. Yeah, it was definitely intense. It was I feel like it's it was way more intense. And this is just a sign of the times than something we would get aimed at families. This was definitely a family film way more intense than something that we would get today. Big time. Um, I think one of the other things that I really loved was each character had little quirks and little quiet, you know, quiet features and details. And one of the things I loved was how Robert Davi was always singing the opera. What a neat little detail, right? I mean, he's a wonderful singer. Apparently he's actually classically trained and he's doing this singing that just added this weird, but interesting dimension. You know what it makes me think of in Top Gun when Iceman is flipping the the coins with his fingers, right? This interesting little thing that stuck with us that only this actor could do. Again, this is the character piece, you know, the building of the character in, in the right casting. But how cool was that, that he did that little piece? And he brought that to the part, right? That was not written into the script when he when they cast him, and it turns out he was this classically trained opera singer, and he brought that to the part. It was a beautiful addition. As you said, Val Kimmer, I find it hard to believe in the script. It said that Iceman is doing this cool trick with a with a quarter that now Val Kilmer, you have to learn how to do. Right, uh, right. I'm willing to bet that's, that's a cool little thing that he brought to the character. And that's my favorite kind of stuff, and I just feel like in very heavily produced modern things, you just don't get that. I feel like there's just, the leashes are been, the leashes have been made tighter on everybody, so you don't see the same kind of creativity that you do in some of these classics. Agreed. One last thing that was really interesting uh, was that when the kids actually saw the pirate ship, Apparently, they were told to close their eyes and they were not allowed to see it until the moment when they actually see it in the movie so that their reaction was as authentic as possible. And apparently, Josh Brolin screamed out, holy S-H-I-T, and they had to cut and redo the scene. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's how excited they were. So the movie ends with them on the beach, reunited with their parents. Great scene. Uh, lots of lots of really cool little little touches and nods to things we've seen. Uh, we laughed when Chunk's parents were there with a Domino's pizza for him. 
You got to see uh, Data's dad with his gadget, crazy gadget camera. And one of the things I loved about it is it really almost felt like a behind the scenes, right? It really, it felt like the movie proper had ended. And then we're in this secondary thing where the reporters asking them questions and everyone sort of let their guard down. And then we get those two more big hits. We get the discovery in Mikey's marble bag of all the jewels. And then we get the final moment where One-Eyed Willie's ship comes out of that cave. And they are all very confident that this small handful of jewels is enough to pay for everyone's home <laughs> because Mikey's dad immediately just rips up the contract uh, and throws it up in the air is assisted as we noticed last night by some there is I would bet money that there was somebody else behind him throwing up additional paper in the air somewhere somebody tells the story of I was the intern who got to throw the extra paper to make it look <laughs> like it was a ticker tape parade you know <laughs> see those pieces those are my pieces exactly I have to tell that one last part about where Mouth takes the pen and writes on Troy's dad's beautiful trench coat. He just puts a pen marking right on it. Right. An incredible adventure where this ragtag group of buddies pulls together to win the day to save the goondocks and really to show that all of their individual unique and nerdy attributes can be used to help each other and help win over a cause. And I just love that, that it really is such a wonderful message that being an outsider does not necessarily mean you have to stay outside. They could actually come in and and do something really important for the town. And I think that's why in so many ways, the Goonies ends up being one of the central films of 1985 in, in terms of our favorite stuff. You know, it really sits at the center of this wonderful mix of people and ideas and emotions to this day. Yeah, it really just checked all the boxes for us. The adventures, the it had some Indiana Jones, it had some James Bond with Data, it had some, I'm trying to think of some of the, the, the raunchier movies we weren't probably, probably not supposed to watch back then, some <laughs> porkies. Um, it was this perfect blend for us at our age. It came out in 85. I don't believe we saw it right in 85. It was probably a a year or two later. So we were probably around the age, very close to the kids in the movie. And I think that's another reason why that made it so, so special for us. And on that note, I think it's time to wrap up episode three. It's been an incredible adventure with the Goonies and we look forward to talking to everybody at the next one. But in the meantime, stay limber.